Hey everyone, I'm Phil Albertelli and this is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. So let's see, any housekeeping to take care of? Probably sound like I'm channeling Sam Harris there. I think he always used to say housekeeping uh, at the beginning of his episodes taking care of housekeeping or whatever. Uh, Well, no corrections to go over that I'm aware of. Ignorance is bliss, as they say. Also probably the cause of much suffering. Uh, But anything else? Oh yeah, I've been contemplating reviving the whole thing where I give people shout-outs at the beginning of the show. It came to mind because I've been noticing a lot of people liking the Facebook page lately. Hopefully that means I'm doing something right. Uh, But if you're new to the show, I used to give people a shout-out at the beginning of the show if they liked the Facebook page or became a Patreon supporter, etc. But I'm a little conflicted, to be honest. On the one hand, I want to acknowledge or thank people for their support. But on the other, I know some people really value their privacy and might not necessarily feel comfortable having their names made public on some podcast. I'll think about it. That's also what's kept me from adding a role of Patreon supporters' names at the end of the YouTube version of the show. I've seen other content creators do that, and I've always thought it was a cool idea, but um, I've chosen to err on the side of privacy. And speaking of Patreon, how's that for a segue? Um, A couple of weekends ago, I uploaded some bonus content for the first time in a while. I offer my very surface-level layman's take on the Russia-Ukraine conflict and discuss a disturbing story out of India that I had been wanting to cover for a while. It involves monkeys supposedly waging what some have characterized as a revenge campaign against local canines, Following the death of a baby monkey, or baby monkeys, plural, the good news is I don't want to give too much away because it doesn't make sense or seem fair to make special content for Patreon supporters and then discuss everything I mentioned in the bonus episode in detail on the main show. But suffice to say, um, the good news is that much of the story, at least according to the Newsweek article I was reading from, may actually have been exaggerated. I also drank for the first time in a while on the bonus show. I took a gamble on some hard cider that had been lying around for a while. I think the expiration or Best Buy date said uh, 2021, so last year, but still tasted good and I'm alive, so, you know. Um, So there's one more thing I want to take care of before we move on to the news stories. If I do, I should probably add that disclaimer or caveat. You guys know how long-winded I can be. We'll see how long this takes me, and maybe if there's time, you know, maybe, maybe not. Um, Maybe I'll move on to some news stories afterwards, or maybe I'll save the uh, news stories for um, for the next episode. But this is the thing I want to mention or take care of. A listener who I'm friendly with on Twitter actually started their own podcast, And I don't know if they want me divulging this or not. Well, actually, they tweeted the offer at me publicly, so hopefully um, that means it's all right. But they wanted to know if they could pay me to promote their podcast on the show. And I let them know that, you know, if they wanted to donate to the show through PayPal or Patreon, that's fine. You know, it's up to them. But I'm happy to mention the show, you know, mention their podcast on the show either way, you know, for free. 
A number of people have approached me over the years asking if I'd plug or mention their stuff on the show, and I've never asked for money, as long as it's not something that conflicts with my ethics, like if someone said they wrote a book about how to beat your kids, or as an animal lover, if they were like, oh, I'm starting an all-meat carnivore diet podcast, you know, then I'd have to be like, oh, sorry, man, I can't do it, you know? But if someone's just starting out, trying to get noticed, especially if it's someone I'm already friendly with, why not? You know, I'll mention your stuff. And this person in particular has really been kind and supportive of me, you know, on Twitter, enthusiastically commenting on the show, liking and retweeting my stuff. So I think it would be pretty shitty, uh, pardon the language, you know, of me to not be willing at least, you know, to give them a mention um, now that they're starting their own show. But be forewarned, after everything I just said, I kind of have a poor or troubled history or track record of plugging other people's stuff on the show, the weakened out curse perhaps. Uh, in the early days of the podcast, a young aspiring playwright asked to come on the show, and I believe my old friend Chris Weber sent him my way. Chris Weber, aka C-Web, used to host an atheist podcast called C-Web Sunday School, and then he started another podcast called Paranormal Skeptic Academy. Uh, I'm not sure if uh, C-Web is still podcasting or not. I haven't spoken with him in a long time, but I still consider him a friend. Um, it would be fun to talk to him again on the show someday. But anyway, I think this playwright, I actually forget his name, I think he went by a pen name or a pseudonym. But I think he approached Chris first, and Chris was like, uh, I'm kind of busy, uh, let's send him over to the Weekend Out. <laughs> Not sure those were his, you know, his exact thoughts or words, but something like that. And so he approached me on Twitter, I think, and told me that he was writing or had written a play called Son of Man, and I believe he was also an atheist or a kind of secular type, so it was a play about Jesus, but a more human Jesus without the miracles, I think, but it also integrated themes from Gnosticism, and I think the author had been influenced by um, Christ mythicism and was familiar with the work of mythicists like uh, Richard Carrier, etc., and so I had him on the show, and we talked for about two or three hours, but afterwards there were a couple of problems. One was, and this usually happens when I interview someone, some people resent that instead of doing a straightforward, journalistic-style interview where I ask a prepared question and let the person answer without giving my input, that I tend to take more of a conversational approach where I do offer my personal opinions, share anecdotes, etc. Some people find that approach annoying as if I'm monopolizing the conversation. And then, and I felt really bad about this, there was a technical glitch. I recorded our conversation using a call recorder app and Skype. And then as a backup, I also had GarageBand recording my mic just in case. And so the Skype call, you know, recorder app did successfully capture our conversation. But for whatever reason, the volume was really low. Luckily, on my end, I had the GarageBand, you know, recording the fall back on, which came out perfect, um, at least, you know, clear and the volume was good. Um, I asked him if he happened to have a backup on his end, but he didn't. 
And this was awful, so I take the crappy low-quality Skype recording with the super low volume and replaced all my parts with the high-quality GarageBand recording, and so compared to me, the playwright I interviewed is barely audible or was barely audible, so I try to do my best and I max out the volume on him and try to lower my volume as much as possible to match it, but if I brought it down too much, then you'd be struggling to hear me as well, so it came out sounding to some like not only was I dominating the conversation uh, personality-wise, but audio-wise as well. Uh, just a disaster and felt really bad about it. I remember I asked him if he wanted to come back on and we could do a shorter, more concise episode where I just really stepped back and let him talk and plug his project, uh, but I don't think we ever did. And so it wasn't long before we just fell out of touch and I didn't mention it, but he's actually British. I believe he actually did get to the point where the play was actually, I'm saying actually a lot, <laughs> where it was cast and they did live performances. So uh, good for him. And I, I don't know um, if there was any continued success with the play or what happened. And then I remember there was this aspiring author. I believe he was an atheist. Uh, I know he was an atheist. And he had written a book from an atheist perspective. And he was looking for ways to promote it. So he approached me yet again on Twitter and asked if I'd mention it on the show. And I hadn't read it and I wasn't going to lie to my audience and say I had. But I'm like, okay, I can mention it. So I did my best to be nice and supportive while admitting I hadn't read it. And my thinking was, well, at least my audience will know it's out there. And so he thanked me for mentioning it and then went on to rattle off a list of things he thought I could do to improve my show. <laughs> I remember back then it pissed me off. I'm thinking I was good enough to go out of my way to plug your stuff for free. And then you're going to turn around and tell me how I should do my show. But in fairness, looking back, you know, I think I've emotionally matured since then. He was probably just trying to be helpful or offer a bit of constructive criticism. Uh, don't know whatever became of that guy and his book, but I hope he's doing well, you know. And that anecdote came to mind as I was responding to this listener who recently started his own podcast. Because I was hoping I wasn't coming across as a jerk as I went on to give him some unsolicited advice about how he could improve his own, you know, show. And we'll get to his podcast, I promise. Uh, I've got my own, you know, roundabout way of doing things, as I'm sure you're probably uh, aware of by now if you're a regular listener. Oh yeah, and this was also back in the day. There was this atheist dad, also in England, who was locked in some kind of custody battle and the court or judge was trying to order him to bring his kids to church. And I believe he approached me. I believe he was inspired to seek me out after hearing the episode I did entitled uh, The Founding Fathers on Religion in Their Own Words. So I had him on to talk about his case and we had a really good conversation. And he was a really smart, knowledgeable, good-natured guy. And as I remember, he even embarrassed me with how much more he knew about history than me. And the uh, conversation went so well that I think we had even planned to, you know, to talk again. But I remember he found out that at the time I liked Thunderfoot or at least watched his videos. And I think he took issue with that, you know, fact. And if you're not familiar, and I haven't watched a Thunderfoot video in years, not because I have anything against him, I just fell out of the habit. 
but he's an actual scientist who on the side, you know, creates YouTube videos. Maybe by this point, maybe uh, YouTube is his full-time job, I don't know. But he has a very successful channel. He started out making mostly atheist content, debunking creationists, that kind of thing. And then um, during or in the wake of Gamergate, started making kind of anti-SJW content, which is maybe why this dad from England objected to the fact that I, you know, casually mentioned I was kind of a Thunderfoot fan or appreciate his content to some degree. And I had covered Gamergate myself back in the day, um, only on a couple of episodes, I think. And I can admit when I think political correctness has gone too far, but I've never been some rabid anti-SJW. Uh, but I think, um, yeah, I think that was it. Uh, never heard from that dad again. Not sure if he still listens or not. On the off chance he does, peace, my friend, and I hope, uh, you know, everything has turned out well. Um, trying to take the high road, but I have to admit, and I think this is probably just a sign of uh, emotional immaturity on my part, if I had someone on my show, especially or specifically if they approach me and, you know, I give them a platform or plug their stuff, you know, for free or whatever, and then they drop me like a hot potato because maybe I like a content creator they don't like, uh, it does kind of get under my skin. That happens with listeners, too. I've had listeners over the years that have approached me because they like the show and we strike up kind of a friendship or rapport, and then I say something they don't agree with on one episode, and it's like, that's it, they're done, you know? And at this point, after listening to all those stories, this listener who wanted me to plug their podcast is probably like, oh man, uh, maybe this was a bad idea. But speaking of that, uh, let's finally get to the subject of, uh, of their podcast. And I have to admit, there's something I don't like about myself because it makes me feel like maybe I'm a bit cowardly or lacking moral character or backbone, at least in this one regard. And maybe it makes me a bit of a hypocrite because... It's not often, but I myself will sometimes discuss on the show, you know, instances where I think political correctness goes too far or gets absurd. Uh, but back to my point, I don't go on Twitter much, but when I do, I'll see friends, listeners, fellow content creators, even some fellow atheist podcasters post polarizing political stuff, anti quote unquote woke stuff. And I'll be like, damn, leave me out of it, you know, and I'll feel kind of bad because I'm like, oh, it's so and so they're my friend or we're on good terms. And I'll be tempted to like their tweet, not necessarily because I agree with it, because often I'll find myself not agreeing with the comment in question, but I'll be tempted to like it anyway, just as a, a you know, show of solidarity for someone I'm friendly with, you know. Uh, but often I won't. In fairness to myself, I don't think it's because I'm afraid to be judged by others on Twitter for what I like or retweet. I like to think I've matured beyond that, you know, relatively speaking. But I think it's more of a practical concern. Believe it or not, after doing this for about a decade, I still harbor, you know, delusions or whatever of possibly growing the podcast. And I think there's a part of me that's afraid if I go out of my way to like something on, you know, on either extreme of the political spectrum, especially if it doesn't really re even reflect my own views, that's going to give a false impression that I'm on one extreme or the other and potentially drive people away from the podcast. Especially as I was saying earlier, where people can be so fickle, you know, say one wrong thing on one episode or give the wrong impression in passing, and some people will drop you like a hot stone.
But that being said, if it's something I really believe in or something that really reflects my, you know, views or values, then I will support it openly, even if it's, uh, you know, relatively controversial. For instance, I like tweets from the Satanic Temple all the time. That's pretty controversial. I often like tweets from other atheists, as long as it actually pertains to atheism or religion. But the more political stuff that makes me a little wary or gun-shy, and it's not just right-leaning or anti-quote-unquote woke stuff, uh, the same goes for some left-leaning Twitter content, too. For instance, I follow a lot of celebs on Twitter, not because I'm chasing clout or anything. It's usually just celebs that I recognize and personally like. Um, like, I follow Jerry Ryan. She played Seven of Nine on Star Trek Voyager. And I've always had a thing for her. I don't want to sound uh, pervy, but she looked amazing in that bodysuit. If you're a Star Trek fan, you'll know what I'm saying. But um, but I also genuinely... I just hit something. Uh, pardon. But I also genuinely like her character, Seven of Nine. Awesome story arc. Very cool and unique and badass character. And she's actually been reprising her role uh, as Seven in the recent Picard series uh, in her 50s and still looks amazing. But I follow her on Twitter, and she's very left-leaning. And I'm left-leaning, too, but she's very kind of Hollywood lib-left, you know? And she'll sometimes tweet things that are a little cringe or that demonstrate that she might not necessarily have all the facts on a subject. And I'll think about clicking, you know, like just because it's her. And then I'm like, uh, you know, thumb hovering over the, uh, the screen on my iPad. And I'm like, forget it. Uh, then the same thing sometimes happens with Lucy Lawless, who I used to love back in the day on Xena, even though as some, you know, as someone with a love of ancient history and mythology, both Hercules and Xena seem to take place in some bonkers fever dream fantasy version of ancient Greece. Um, and I also loved her more recently on Ash versus Evil Dead. Uh, but she's an environmental activist and she's very passionate and she's constantly tweeting. And I find myself agreeing with most of her environmental activism tweets and a lot of her political tweets as well. But once in a while, I'll see one and I'm like, oh, I'm not touching that man, you know. Um, happens with retweets as well. Sometimes people you like will retweet something that you know is off or missing context. And it's like, you know, hands off the mouse, back away slowly. But yeah, the really divisive political and culture war stuff can get really exhausting and stressful. And sometimes I'm just like, can I just, you know, like horror movie and pet tweets? Uh, in fairness, once again, you know, maybe I'm a hypocrite. I was starting to get pretty political on the show for a while, uh, sharing my anti-Trump sentiments more than perhaps some listeners were comfortable with. Um, but I've been trying to get back to the roots of the show, where if I do cover politics, it's at places where politics and religion intersect, separ you know, separation of church and state issues, uh, bigoted fundamentalists, politicians pandering to the religious right, that kind of thing. Uh, but now that I've added what was probably a relatively unnecessarily and overly long preamble, 16-minute long preamble, let's finally move on, you know, to the Listener in Questions podcast. And I apologize to the listener for such a kind of rotten and unfair or loaded setup. I spend all of that time talking about how I don't consider myself some rabid anti-SJW, and I'm a bit put off by the political and culture war stuff. And the name of their show is the Anti-Woke Podcast, you know? And I think that's why I went into all that stuff. I was trying to 
give some context as to where I stand in relation to their content. And I remember I was like, okay, diplomacy skills, you know, don't fail me now. How do I thread the needle? How do I, on the one hand, promote the podcast of someone who's been very supportive of me and my show on social media without making it seem like I'm, you know, quote unquote, anti-woke myself? Um, you know, because I'm, some, I'm somewhere in the middle. On the one hand, as a left-leaning person, I'm pro-diversity, inclusivity, I'm supportive of uh, LGBT, the LGBT community, etc. But at the same time, I think political correctness, as I've already said, can be taken too far and taken to the extreme. It can start to seem, you know, absurd or downright Orwellian. And I'm someone who doesn't like thought and speech policing. Um, but I'm I'm not someone whose bread and butter is tackling quote unquote woke culture or whatever. It's not where my passions lie. Uh, but I told the listener, and hopefully it didn't you know make me seem cynical. But I was like you know paraphrasing, man, it, you know if you were ever going to do an anti woke podcast, this would be the time. It's a very popular you know niche or niche right now. And I told him, I think he has a good voice. He's, um, it's funny. He, he's always been so enthusiastic on Twitter that I expected him to have a kind of high cartoony voice for some reason, but he's got a guy's voice, you know, with kind of a, a deep timber to it. So a good voice. And, you know, I could see him building an audience of people who are into that content and I should probably be taking my own advice, but I told him, I was like, yeah, you know, work, you know, your sound's not terrible, but work on improving your sound. Um, maybe find a good intro or a bumper, you know, music, you know, go for it. Uh, I've been doing this for about, as I said, a decade now, and uh, I can't believe it. And I'm still trying to improve my own sound quality. And as it, you know, turns out, um, I was recently forced to get a new computer. I think I mentioned that on the show. I got a refurbished uh, Mac Mini after the last uh, one suddenly crapped out. And I ended up losing a bunch of my audio loops, including the bumper music for the show, um, working to get all that back. And uh, I was never completely dedicated to that bumper music anyway. But in the meantime, I've just been using that little boom effect at the beginning of the show. So yeah, I probably need to be uh, taking my own advice. And I've always assumed, I've never conducted a poll or anything, that the lion's share of my audience are probably similar to myself ideologically, relatively left-leaning or progressive, uh, atheist or skeptic types. But I know I also have listeners and YouTube viewers who lean more right and listeners who may, you know, not necessarily be atheists, but they appreciate the subject matter, the documentary episodes, etc. In fairness, there are also left-leaning people who are anti-woke or anti-woke types who self-identify as being on the left. But the point I'm trying to make is if you're someone in my audience who is into, you know, that kind of quote unquote anti-woke or anti-political correctness content, then there is actually a podcast out there called the Anti-Woke Podcast. And uh, I was able to listen to his episodes on um, I was going to say iTunes, but isn't iTunes kind of all but dead now unless you're on an older Mac or a PC? Because I, I believe iTunes has been fragmented into several different apps, the podcast app, an Apple TV app, uh, Apple Music app. But I meant to say that I was able to find his show 
in Apple's podcast app on my uh, on my iPhone. So you can find him there. And he's also uh, very active on Twitter. And I did my due diligence and I listened to several episodes. And one of the more recent ones really caught my interest. In it, he discusses instances of what seemed to him to be, I think, what some would call quote-unquote forced diversity. I can't remember if he uses that specific term, but I think how I just put it is a fair assessment, hopefully. And in fairness, I myself did an episode not all that long ago where I talked about instances of what some sometimes perhaps crudely refer to as quote-unquote race swapping. Not usually the type of thing I would get into, uh, but there were a couple of instances that I found somewhat strange. Um, there's an upcoming God of War game called God of War Ragnarok, and I've always been really into Norse mythology. Um, and, and so it's inspired by or takes place in the world of Norse mythology. And it was revealed that they made Angra Boda, a female frost giant, who's kind of like the Greek echidna, a mother of monsters type character. In the myths, she gives birth to a number of the most notorious monsters in Norse mythology, Jormungandr, the Midgard or world serpent, the goddess Hel, and the monstrous wolf Fenrir or uh, Fenris. But it was revealed via promotional shots or character reveals that they made the character black. And let's keep things in perspective. At the end of the day, the color of a fictional character would be kind of a weird hill to die on. And if you complain too loudly, you know, you risk looking like a racist or like it bothers you a bit too much, right? Um, but I did think it was a little weird, you know, making a frost giant character from Scandinavian mythology have an ethnically African appearance. It would be like making an African or Egyptian god Egypt is a part of Africa, check out my geography skills, but making them white or Caucasian, which has happened, you know. I remember there was a horrible movie back in 2016 called Gods of Egypt, and two of the main characters, the gods um, Horus and Set, were played by white actors. Gerard Butler played Set, I believe, and the actor who played Jamie Lannister on uh, Game of Thrones played Horus. And I remember thinking, I like these two guys, but that's a little messed up. Uh, they did cast the late Chadwick Boseman as the god Thoth, which was cool, you know. And in fairness, there's a long history of Hollywood whitewashing, you know, John Wayne playing Genghis Khan, or is it Genghis now, right? Genghis Khan. Um, you know, white people, white actors playing Egyptian pharaohs, etc. There actually were white royals in ancient Egypt, but that was until later with the Ptolemaic dynasty. Alexander the Great's general Ptolemy settled in Egypt after Alexander conquered it, and that's actually where Cleopatra came from. She was part of the Ptolemaic dynasty, and the Ptolemies were Greek. Well, I know it's a weird thing. Um, Alexander the Great was technically Macedonian, but essentially you can consider ancient Macedon as part of Greece. And the quote-unquote race of the ancient Egyptians has always been kind of a, a topic of speculation and contention. Yes, Egypt is in Africa, but I believe it's thought that the ancient Egyptians were probably pretty ethnically or phenotypically diverse. And that they didn't, they probably all didn't look like black Africans. I think there was um, probably genetics from the Levant, the Near East mixed in, etc. But there probably were people who phenotypically also looked black. Uh, and um, 
there were there was actually a Nubian dynasty, so you had black African pharaohs. But whatever they looked like, it's probably safe to say, given the region, you know, that they didn't look like uh, Jamie Lannister, like uh, lily white Europeans. But this God of War game hasn't come out yet, and I probably won't play it when it does, just because I lost interest in the franchise after the second game, that was a long time ago, and they were always just like relatively entertaining Devil May Cry ripoffs to me anyway. So I really don't have any uh, skin in the game anyway, unintentional race and video game puns at the same time. Skin and game. Skin game. Skin games. That sounds, uh... That's, that sounds creepy. Anyway, but, uh, but if the game tries to offer some narrative explanation as to why this Nordic character has an African appearance, um, maybe, you know, like she traveled to the world of the Norse gods, but originally came from the Egyptian or other African pantheon, I think then, you know, at least there would be some kind of explanation and it would make, a, a, you know, it would make more sense. But continuing with the video game theme, the other thing I talked about on that or on or in that episode is how I'm a longtime Resident Evil fan. And sorry if this is becoming one of those nerdy episodes. You know, I've been following the franchise for probably roughly two decades. And last year they came out with the first live action Resident Evil movie since the end of those absurd Paul Anderson films. And I think Resident Evil fans were hoping this was going to be the reboot, you know, everyone had been waiting for. Something that would be much more faithful to the source material. And that would bring these characters, you know, we've loved for decades to the screen as is, both in their appearance and their personalities. Uh, but nope, not the case, sadly. Not only did they cast actors, at least in the case of Leon and Jill, who looked nothing like the characters, but they also completely changed the characters' personalities, with the exception of, uh, of Chris, I think. The actor who played Chris Redfield looked and acted like him, so at least there was that. But they turned Leon into a bumbling idiot who only had his job due to nepotism. They turned Wesker into a dude bro. And they made Jill into some kind of weird psycho. And if you're someone who's not into video games or this kind of stuff, I apologize for throwing all these you know, fictional characters' names at you. Um, the only thing they were faithful to, I think, was the scenery. The police station and the mansion looked really close to the games. But I think everyone was thinking, so you're going to go out of your way to recreate the environments accurately, only to inhabit or populate them with established, you know, characters that have been completely altered and bastardized. Um, and I'm not sure how the film performed financially, but I think it was largely panned by both fans and critics alike. I think it has a 31% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and a verified audience score of 66%, 44% if you include all audience. I will say, though, in fairness, that I did like the actors. Strangely, it was actually a pretty charismatic cast. It's just some of the casting was way off, and the story and the direction were garbage, if that's not too rough. But I remember thinking to myself, it would be kind of cool to see all these actors together in a movie that was actually good. And I know it might not sound or seem like it at this point, but as I said earlier, I really am for inclusivity and diversity, 
And there are actually, you know, times when a character's ethnicity or quote unquote race, and I put race in quotes because there are genetic and, you know, and phenotypical differences between different populations, but we're all human, all members of the same species. And I don't even think race is considered a hard scientific, you know, term. I think the consensus is it's a social construct, but after everything and People are going to say, sure, sure, it's, it's just a social construct. And once again, you know, as I admitted, there are genetic differences between populations and um, different phenotypical appearances, uh, different complexions, hair types, face shapes, etc. And within certain populations, there's sometimes even the genetic susceptibility to certain illnesses like sickle cell among people of African descent or Tay-Sachs among Ashkenazi Jews. So there are those genetic differences, but I think the consensus is all that doesn't merit breaking people up into different races, you know? And I thought I remember hearing a long time ago in a documentary, I don't know if this is true or not, that supposedly there's more genetic variation between two members of the same family than there is between two quote-unquote races. That's how closely related we all are. And I was just looking it up, and another way I see it being phrased is that supposedly there's more genetic variation within a single race than between races, and that uh, according to the Human Genome Project, all you know humans alive today are 99.9% identical at the DNA level. But yeah, but still, you know, there's phenotypical differences and stuff, and that's why I think... Um, Hopefully it doesn't seem like I'm being racist or something, but if you're looking at a story that's supposed to take place in, say, the world of Norse mythology, and suddenly there's a character that looks phenotypically African, it makes sense that you might stop and scratch your head, you know? But back to the point I was trying to make, um, I think there are times when a character's ethnicity or quote-unquote race, you know, has been changed and it works. Uh, Maybe like Samuel Jackson as Nick Fury. Or I remember watching Idris Elba in The Dark Tower as the uh, gunslinger character, and I really liked his performance. I think in a way, um, it also might sometimes depend on how familiar you are with a franchise or a character. I've never read any of the Stephen King books featuring the gunslinger, where I guess, you know, in in those stories, I guess he's white. So that movie was my first introduction to the character. And so I just accepted Idris Elba because he's the only version of that character I've ever known. Um, But as with the case of me in Resident Evil, if you've been staring at the same character for 20 years and suddenly they look completely different, it's going to jump out at you more. But in fairness, you know, kind of like me with Resident Evil, there may be Stephen King fans out there who are really familiar with this character. And I thought I heard that not only is the character white in the book, that he may possibly have a kind of racist tinge to him as well. I'm not sure. Uh, But if that's the case, then yeah, you're like really changing the character or whatever. But I think generally it's better if instead of just doing the old swaparoo, if you try to make things more inclusive and diverse by introducing new characters to existing franchises or, you know, create brand new stories with a diverse, you know, cast or characters. I think a great example is one of my favorite TV shows of all time, Raised by Wolves. Not the British sitcom by the same name. Did I just say shitcom by accident? But the... (laughs) 
but the sci-fi series about androids and atheists, that sounds like a really dull tabletop game, androids and atheists. But I just finished watching season two, and um, I might actually do a review of the second season. But my two favorite characters uh, on the show are the androids' mother and father, mother's white, father's black, and the human kids um, that they raise on this distant planet after an apocalyptic war on Earth are every color of the rainbow, white, Asian, black. I think one of the girls is uh, Indian or Pakistani um, or of you know Indian or Pakistani descent. Um, but a great show, and I think it does an awesome job of being diverse without it being forced or hitting you over the head. But in that listener's recent episode I mentioned, he touches on a couple of things that caught my attention. He mentioned the trailer for the upcoming Obi-Wan Kenobi show. Not Wan, you know, J-U-A-N, that really would be diverse, Obi-Wan Kenobi. But he mentions that trailer, and he also mentions a sequel to the TV series Vikings, which I was uh, completely unaware of. So thanks for the heads up. I was a big fan of Vikings, despite the fact that it was riddled with historical inaccuracies. On a bit of, you know, a, a bit of a coincidence here, but Travis Fimmel, who played Ragnar on Vikings, is also in Raised by Wolves. And I'll talk about the Kenobi trailer first. And I know this is horrible and it's supposed to be a plug and I apologize. Uh, but I did disagree with his Kenobi trailer analysis a bit. And so maybe I'll quickly give, you know, a little background concerning my relationship with Star Wars. Uh, when I was a little kid, I absolutely loved Star Wars. I had the action figures, and I can remember collecting the Kenner box tops or proofs of purchase or proof of purchases, whatever, and uh, sending them out in the mail to get special figures and all that. Uh, one of my first existential conflicts involved a Star Wars toy, actually. When I was little, there was a department store called Sears and Roebuck, or Sears and Robux, I don't know. And um, I went there with my mother, and she bought me Boba Fett's spaceship, which was called Slave One. Speaking of political correctness, that name has actually been canceled. I think Disney officially uh, changed it or got rid of it. Uh, but I remember holding the box with the toy in it in my hand, you know, while we were, you know, still in the store and wondering if it was real, as psychotic as that sounds. And how did I know anything was real? Messed up, I know, but I don't think it's uncommon for kids to have musings like that uh, as their sense of reality is still forming or developing. But I loved Star Wars, and then when I got to be maybe around 12, and I, you know, I started to feel self-conscious playing with or having my parents buy me toys, and uh, all the Star Wars stuff, all my Transformers, GoBots, Shogun Warriors, they all went up to my parents' attic, and I didn't look at them again until I first moved out and dragged them all down so I could sell them on eBay to help pay bills. I don't even think I really, you know, thought about Star Wars again until maybe the prequel movies came out. And I couldn't even be bothered to see those in the theater. I just waited till they came to TV or whatever. And like a lot of people, I had mixed feelings about the prequels. There was some, you know, some cool moments and some cool ideas, but there was also a lot of cheese or cringe and just some, you know, bad calls on Lucas's part. But I still think the last half of Revenge of the Sith is some of the best Star Wars ever. I love when we actually get to see Anakin really start to turn to the dark side. 
And then after the prequels, I pretty much went back to not even thinking about Star Wars. Uh, but I noticed, I don't know if it's, uh, you know, a part of getting older or what, but over the last four years or so, I've started to feel nostalgic for a lot of the things from my childhood. And I think it was around um, the time of the lockdown but I just binge-watched all the Star Wars movies, and I watched them in order from the prequels through the original trilogy, and then the sequel trilogy, which I also have my criticisms of. There are some things I actually like about the sequels, like some of the characters, for instance. I actually really like Daisy Ridley. I think she's an attractive and charismatic actress, and I think she's a good fit for the Rey character. In costume, she looks right at home in the Star Wars universe, and I don't think Rey's a bad character. I even like the name, you know, short and punchy, it works. And then there's Gwendolyn Christie, I think her name is. She played Brienne of Tarth on Game of Thrones. But I like her character, Captain Phasma, and I also think the actors that played Finn and Poe are charismatic and likable. The shame of the thing is, it's just all wasted on a disjointed mess of a trilogy. The directors and people behind it were entrusted with one of the most valuable and beloved franchises in entertainment history, and they couldn't even be bothered to come up with a well-crafted, solid, coherent plot ahead of time, um, you know, that could then be broken up into three movies or installments. It's like, ah, uh, we'll play it by air and see how it goes. Uh, we'll make it work somehow. Well, they didn't, but <laughs> I know there's actually people out there who like those movies. Um, like I said, there's things I like about those movies, but they were a mess, man, and the franchise and the fans deserved better. Um, they could have taken the time, like I said, to make a well-crafted, coherent plot that would arch all three movies ahead of time, you know, instead of kind of winging it. But anyway, so I binged all the movies, and then I had always avoided the Clone Wars TV series because I, you know, I was kind of put off by the animation style. But I decided to binge watch the final season of that, and then I also binge watched all of uh, Star Wars Rebels. And of course, I've spoken on the show about how I'm a big Mandalorian fan. I watched The Book of Boba Fett, too. That was kind of a bummer, except for uh, the couple of episodes that focused more on The Mandalorian, you know, than Boba Fett. But yeah, so you can probably tell that over the last couple of years, I've become something of a born-again Star Wars fan. Uh, so anyway, one of the criticisms or observations the listener made on his podcast regarding the Kenobi trailer is that the trailer focuses on this unknown character we've never been you know, introduced to. She's portrayed by a young, svelte black actress and appears to be some kind of bad guy. She's dressed in black and I think wielding a red lightsaber. Uh, and because the trailer kind of lingers on this character for a bit, I think he was assuming that, oh, here we go, political correctness, this strong black woman's going to give it to Kenobi, you know? Uh, I didn't quite see it that way. Like I was saying before, I think diversity is a good thing when you're dealing with new characters, etc. Uh, you know, creating new characters instead of just swapping the, the skin color of existing ones. So as far as I know, unless she's mentioned in the books or video games, this is a new character. You know, why not make her black? If there's white people in space, why not black people in space? We already know there's, uh, you know, some Lando, Finn, etc. Space Latinos, too. Jimmy Schmidt. Uh, actually, I think he's part Dutch, right? But part Puerto Rican, too. 
One thing that'll definitely interfere with your suspension of disbelief while watching Star Wars is, you know, if you suddenly stop to think, and this has happened to me, wait, how the hell are there humans in another galaxy? Where'd they come from? Are they the same as us? Is there some Stargate shit going on? But uh, seeing as I was just talking about how I binged watched all this Star Wars stuff, I can actually offer some insight into the nature of this character from the trailer. The series Star Wars Rebels introduces, I think they were introduced in Rebels, but the idea of these characters called Inquisitors, they're these figures trained by Darth Vader to hunt down Jedi. The male ones are called brothers and the female ones are called sisters. And based on other footage in the trailer, I feel confident that we're dealing with, uh, we're dealing with Inquisitors and she's one of them. In fact, the only thing that bothered me about the trailer and a lot of people were commenting or complaining about this, and this is a really nerdy observation, is that the Grand Inquisitor's character design is kind of whack. Uh, the character appears in Star Wars Rebels, and the live-action version looks off. The head shape in particular is all wrong, which is strange since the same species appears in the prequel movies with the correct head shape, so... They've proven over a decade ago that you could do it in live action, so why can't they do it now? I don't know. But as I mentioned, he also brought up the fact that there's another Viking series, and he mentioned that there's a Jarl on the show, a kind of medieval Scandinavian vassal or ruler who serves below a king. I think it might be the root of the word Earl, but their name is Jarl Hakon, I believe, and they're portrayed by a black actress. And as maybe you could imagine, this has generated a certain amount of controversy. Uh, I have to admit, even when he mentioned it, I was like, wait, what? really? And so, uh, just in case I have to spell it out, a woman of color sitting on a throne in medieval Norway. Uh, but when you dig a little deeper, it doesn't sound quite as absurd. I haven't watched the show yet, but apparently the way they explained it on the show is that her grandfather was a Viking who met her grandmother in Alexandria, Egypt, and brought her back to Norway, where they had a son who was this female Jarl's father. And the Vikings did actually make it as far as Africa, so it's not that implausible when you think of it. And a really interesting thing that I discovered that kind of uh, really shines a new light on things is that the actress who plays this Jarl, I believe her name is Caroline Henderson, is actually half Swedish. She was born in Stockholm. In Sto yeah, I can talk. She was born in Stockholm and moved to Denmark. I think she still lives in Denmark. So ironically, this black or biracial actress probably has more Scandinavian or Viking blood than many of the people complaining about her being on on the show. But as I understand it, there were some Norwegian folks, you know, who were kind of upset by this because they saw it as people messing with their history because there was an actual historical figure, Jarl or Earl Hakon, uh, or Hakon, a male ruler in the 11th century in Norway. But according to the people behind the show, this is a different Jarl Hakon, uh, a purely fictional character with the same name. In fairness, I think they could have at least changed the character's name to help avoid some of this up upset or backlash from people who think you're messing with their history, you know? And I was hoping to get to some news stories, but I spent so much time talking about this stuff that I'm probably gonna, you know, call it a wrap for now and we'll handle the uh, news stories next time around. Um, but yeah, so that listener started his own podcast and, uh, you know, if you're someone out there who, you know, that kind of content resonates with you, the Anti-Woke podcast is out there. And if other listeners, you know, start their own podcasts or whatever, let me know. You know, I'll mention you on the show. 
But as always, thanks for listening, everyone. You know the drill. You can like the Facebook page. You can follow the show on Twitter, even though I'm not on there much as we discussed. You can check out the YouTube channel. Maybe you're doing that now. If you'd like to support the show monetarily, you can go to patreon.com slash theweekendout and help me out for or help the show out. We're one and the same for as little as 99 cents a month. All right, brothers and sisters, until next time. Mm-hmm.